An endless hallelujah to the king. Harvest, it has been a unique morning so far, but a refreshing morning. Declaring who the Lord is. I was just thinking as we were worshiping the Lord together this morning, uh, some of the things that we declared our king to be, uh, our one defense, our righteousness, our Lord, and as we were reading scripture, our shepherd, God is so good. And this morning, now that we've worshipped him and declared who he is, we get to put ourselves under his word and listen to him declare who he is. So if you have your Bible this morning, open up to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be coming face to face with that king that we will one day stand before and sing an endless hallelujah. And as we do that together this morning, we're seeking to know him, to love him, to trust him, and to enjoy him more. So this morning as we come into Mark, we're going to see five different scenes that Mark has arranged together. Now it's important as we read these to to note that these scenes didn't necessarily happen consecutively. Mark is not necessarily interested in giving us a chronological history of Jesus's life. Uh, In fact, the gospels are not just narrative or history or biography, uh, but they're also theological in purpose. And so Mark has arranged these five scenes together to declare something about Jesus Christ. It's at this point in Mark's gospel that conflict is going to be introduced. We've seen conflict already with the supernatural realm, with the spiritual realm, as Jesus is casting out demons and as Satan is on the scene tempting Jesus. But this this morning, we're going to see the Pharisees step onto the stage And watch as Jesus interacts with them. And see why Mark has put these five scenes here to propel the narrative forward. By the end of this morning, the trajectory for the rest of the gospel is going to be set. And we'll know exactly where Jesus is headed. As we experience these five scenes, we're going to be confronted with two essential questions. Uh, These questions change everything as we answer them. Uh, They've altered the course of human history, and when seriously considered by each of us in this room, they should drastically alter the course of our life. So here are the two questions. I want to put them on the table so we know exactly what we're discussing this morning. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And number two, why has he come? These are the two essential questions that I believe Mark is answering with these five scenes. Who is Jesus and why has he come? Uh, Perhaps these are questions that you've considered before. Perhaps you feel like you've come to a place where you have a definitive answer to these two questions. Uh, Maybe these are brand new for you this morning and you were brought here with someone and they said, hey, I, I think you need to hear about Jesus and this is a good place for you to hear about him. This morning, you have to answer these two questions. No matter where you are, at some point in your life, when confronted with what we're going to be confronted with this morning, you have to ask, who is Jesus and why has he come? And so this morning, uh, we're going to have five crucial answers or five crucial responses to these two essential questions. Now, as we go through these five scenes, you're going to notice that there's a lot of information here. We're covering a whole chapter and then six verses of another chapter. And as we do it, we're going to be hitting all kinds of things that may be foreign to our culture. We're going to be seeing allusions back to the Old Testament. 
And we could spend like a Sunday morning on each of these scenes. But that's not the purpose of what we're going to do this morning. Instead, we're going to step back and look at all five scenes together so that we can see how Mark, and more importantly, how Jesus responds to who he is and why he's come. Let's pray. Father, this morning we don't come as those who are here to evaluate or analyze or stand over your word. But Lord, we come and humbly submit ourselves under your word. Father, I ask now that by the power of your spirit working through your word, that you would declare clearly who you are and why you came. Father, that it would cause our hearts to rejoice. Jesus, show us more of yourself. May you ever be increasing. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bible, we should be in Mark chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start really in verse 1. So last week, Pastor Nate opened the scriptures with us. And he revealed, showed how Jesus was declaring that he is the compassionate healer and the forgiver of sins. And this morning, I wanted to hit those first 12 verses again very briefly, just because I wanted all of it to be together there on your notes. Because in this, Jesus, this is one of the responses to who he is. Um, I want us to pay particularly close attention to how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and how the Pharisees interact and respond to Jesus as we look at all five of these scenes. And it's a great start anytime you're looking at a narrative part of scripture to ask, okay, who are the main characters in the scene? What are they doing? And how is the narrator evaluating what's happening? And so in this first scene, Jesus declares himself to be the forgiver of sins. As you look in that passage, Jesus looks at this paralytic who's been brought in by four of his friends, and he looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. How do the Pharisees respond? Well, it says they question in their hearts. They say, why is this man speaking like this? He is blaspheming. And yet the scene ends with the declaration that Jesus is in fact the forgiver of sins, and he does in fact have authority as he looks at this paralytic and says, young man, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And boom, to his feet, walks out. And how does it end in verse 12? They were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Uh, This week, I was thinking about Pastor Nate's challenge to us last week and these four guys who did everything that they possibly could to bring this man to Jesus. And he challenged us saying, we got to be willing to rip the roof off if that's necessary to bring people before this Jesus, to give them an encounter with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But as I was studying this passage again this week, I had to take a step back even a little bit further. And say, you know what, before I can be one of the four men and exercise the heroic faith and ask how I can be bringing people to Jesus like this, before I can get there, I have to realize that in this scene, I'm the paralytic. I am the one who is in desperate need of forgiveness of my sins from Jesus. And as I was thinking about that, I I remember Jesus didn't just come to forgive sins in general. 
Jesus came to forgive my sins. He came to provide forgiveness for my sins. I think sometimes it's so easy to stay at a theological level and to talk about truth in broad categories, that Jesus is the forgiver of sins, and that's true. But it can be so much more difficult to take it to the heart level. It can be harder to feel this truth and allow it to remind me of my personal need of the forgiver of sins. Jesus reveals himself, declares himself to be the forgiver of sins. He provides forgiveness for my sins. Well, let's pick up in verse 13 in chapter 2. Look at our second scene. It says, he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what's happening in this scene? Jesus is calling Levi this tax collector. And if, if you're familiar with the Bible or you spent some time in the Gospels and you realize why this is such a spectacular scene, why this is so startling that Jesus would go to a tax collector and call him to follow him and be one of his disciples. If you're a little bit newer, just a quick context or a reminder for all of us this morning, uh, the Jewish people hated tax collectors. They absolutely hated them. They were some of the most despised characters in the entire society. They worked for the oppressive Roman Empire. They were seen as compromisers, and they were considered unclean. They were even excommunicated from the synagogues. They were disqualified as being judges or witnesses in any trial. They were outcasts thrown off from society, considered socially and religiously unacceptable. Jesus not only in the scene invites Levi to follow him, but then he goes a step further and joins him at his house for dinner, which would have been unthinkable for a Jewish man, let alone a pious Jewish man, let alone someone who has assumed the position of a rabbi to spend an evening over dinner with sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees look at this, and the Pharisees sought to maintain exclusive table fellowship in order to avoid becoming impure or unclean. They had to make sure that they were ceremonially clean so that they could continue to put on this religious show and show the people how they should be following God. And now they're watching Jesus eating a meal with some of the most reprehensible figures in their society. The Pharisees at this point are focused on the external actions, only seeing what's going on on the surface, not giving a thought to what's going on in the heart. So the Pharisees now say to his disciples, and just watch this as the conflict mounts. At first, in the first scene, the Pharisees are questioning in their hearts. It's internal. But now, they're letting it come out. And they're speaking, and they say to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with sinners? 
See, they believed that there was a category of people that were like too far gone, who had no chance of being reconciled to God. They believed that there was a category of people who had acted so sinfully that not only did they need to be cast out from society and from the synagogues and excommunicated from the religious life, but that God was too far from them, that they had gone too far from God and were unable to be reconciled. How does Jesus respond? Well, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the physician. Jesus says, I haven't come to applaud the self-righteous. That's not why I'm here. I am the physician and only those who recognize that they are desperately sick can receive my healing. Jesus is dispelling the notion of someone being too sinful or too far gone to be healed. Those who see their desperate situation and know that they cannot do what they must do in order to relate rightly with God are those for whom Jesus has come. Jesus is the physician. And those that assume that their righteousness is sufficient to satisfy God's requirements are the ones who are excluded from his healing. And again, just with the last scene, I want to take this so quickly to the application of, well, I need to be just like Jesus and befriending unbelievers and being willing to risk my reputation to go to those who are considered socially unacceptable in society. And that's true. But first, I have to recognize that I am the unacceptable one that Jesus accepts. I am the unacceptable one that Jesus accepts. He is the physician, and he came to provide healing for the sick. May God save us from ever thinking that we can obtain this righteousness on our own. This morning, if you are here and you are under the assumption that your good works have to outweigh your bad works in order to be reconciled with God, or that you can do enough good in your life to please God and to spend eternity with him, I lovingly want to tell you this morning, you are sick. You are sick beyond any sort of healing that you can find on your own. And you are in desperate need of this physician. You cannot heal yourself. Jesus, the forgiver of sins who came to provide forgiveness for my sins. Jesus, the physician who came to provide healing. Let's look at our next scene. Mark two eighteen. we pick up. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Everybody got that? 
Clear enough? Pretty easy stuff there. It's like, what in the world just happened? Jesus is having these interactions with the Pharisees. And now all of a sudden on the table, we have bridegroom and garment patches and wineskins and all this stuff that's really confusing and means very little to us. Remember, remember where we are in this scene. The conflict is rising. The Pharisees are questioning in their hearts at first. Now they're questioning the disciples. And then it's almost like Mark does this aside, this new scene. Like, why did he put this here? What Mark is trying to do is he's trying to help his readers understand what's just happened in the last two scenes. And he's preparing them for what he's getting ready to, dis- to declare and to disclose in the next two scenes. Uh, so in this section, again, we have all this unfamiliar stuff. And we could spend the time going there and talking about, well, what is a wineskin? And what are these garment patches? And if we did that, it would be beneficial. But that's not our purpose this morning. What we're trying to do is pull from this scene what is absolutely essential to understanding these five scenes together. And so what I want to do right now is put on the table the necessities for understanding the two essential questions that we're trying to answer. So here we go. First thing, Jesus in this scene declares himself as the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. Many times throughout the Old Testament, the relationship with God and his people is depicted as a marriage relationship. The Jewish people are seen as the bride, and God is considered the bridegroom. And at this point in the first century, there was what was called the messianic expectation. They were waiting for the Messiah that the Old Testament had prophesied about, waiting for the establishment of the new covenant that was promised during the exile in Babylon. And they didn't know exactly what it would look like when it was established or what all it would entail but they were eagerly anticipating the coming of their king. If you remember back in Mark 1.15, you can see it there in your Bible. Jesus shows up proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus did not come to amend the law. Jesus didn't come to adjust the law. Jesus didn't come to assimilate his ways with the law. Jesus comes as the bridegroom to fulfill the law. He didn't come to patch up the old with the new. He didn't come to use the, subst- or the, the structure of the old and fill it with a new substance. Jesus came to provide the only way to God. Jesus is the bridegroom who came to, pro- to provide the only way for God. He's not saying, hey, let me be a part of your thing. You guys seem to be doing very well here, so why don't I just tag along and you can include me in what you're doing. Jesus doesn't just say, why don't I act as your golden ticket and you can pull me out in times of dire need or finally at the end when you actually need me. No, Jesus is saying, I have come as the only way to enter back into relationship with God. In me, Everything changes. You see, God has been progressively revealing himself throughout redemptive history to his people. And as he's been doing that, he's been showing his people how they might relate with him, how they might know him and enjoy him and spend eternity with him. And finally, all of that is climaxing here in Jesus. When Jesus shows up and says, I'm the bridegroom and I've come to fulfill the law. 
he's not saying what you need to do is, is self-actualize or be more religious like the Pharisees or just think positively or just add me to your life. No, Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill this and I am the only way. That's why Mark puts this scene here. So that we'd understand that when Jesus proclaims himself as the forgiver of sins, when he proclaims himself as the physician, that we would understand exactly what Jesus is claiming to be. And he's explaining exactly why Jesus said that he came for. And so now we have the, the, the foundation set for these next two scenes. And this is where the conflict steps to the next level. We pick back up in verse 23. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The scene picks back up and now it's Jesus. Another controversy story with the Pharisees. And it's so important to recognize that we begin this scene on the Sabbath. It says one Sabbath. If you look throughout the narrative of Mark or throughout the other gospels, sometimes it gives us time clues. Usually they're broad, general, vague, and have no bearing on the story. They're only there to keep it in a narrative form. They'll say something like one day or some days later or and Jesus entered and began and it carries on with the narrative. But in this scene, it begins with one Sabbath. And that's on purpose. You see, when the Lord had rescued the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, he established a covenant with them. It was an agreement between God and his people on how they would relate with one another. Part of this covenant, in fact, one of the main things that separated the people of Israel from the rest of the nations in the world was the observance of the Sabbath. This was a big deal, and especially a big deal to the Pharisees who were guarding the law, who were guarding the Old Testament writings. The Lord said, you shall work for six days, but on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, you shall rest. When God gave them this command, he did it with this expressed purpose, that you might be refreshed. And when God gives this commandment, he reminds them of their harsh slavery in Egypt and how he came and giving them a continual reminder that he came to liberate them from the oppression that they had once been under. But we are a people who love the law, are we not? And it's our pride that makes us love the law. There's only one reason why we love the law. We love the law because we say, just tell me exactly what I can do and what I can't do. And then I can do that. I am capable of fulfilling the law. So if you just tell me everything that I absolutely necessarily need to do, then I can do that in and of my own strength. That's what was going on here what's happening specifically with the Pharisees. See, God gives a command that the people should observe the Sabbath for their good, that they might be refreshed and reminded of their dependence on God. But instead, what the Pharisees did is took what God meant for good, and they twisted it 
into an implement for bondage. What the Pharisees did is they actually established 39 specific rules that they laid over top of the Old Testament and said, this is what God meant when he said that you must observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And these rules were asinine, completely arbitrary. Like they would say, if you have to use two hands to tie a knot, that's work. Can't do that on the Sabbath. But if you can tie a knot with one hand, that's acceptable. It's crazy. The Pharisees were putting a crushing burden on the people, taking what God meant to liberate and refresh to something that was exasperating and exhausting and enslaving. This is why the preceding scene with the bridegroom and the garment cloth and the wineskins is so important. Because in this scene, Mark notes that it takes place on the Sabbath and he wants his reader to clearly understand that with Jesus, everything changes. And now he's showing exactly what that means. The conflict is elevated to one of the highest levels that we'll see here as they begin questioning in their hearts in the first scene. And then they move to questioning the disciples. And now look what the Pharisees do. They question Jesus personally. They say to Jesus, Jesus, why are they doing what is unlawful? Why are they doing what they ought not do? Jesus looks at them and uses this question to show the Pharisees how far They had departed from the heart of the law. That the law was given out of love and to liberate from a good father that loves his children. That the law was meant to protect and to nurture a relationship with God. That the law was given for good and they had turned it into enslavement. Well, then Jesus alludes to this unique and obscure passage in 1 Samuel 21 where David entered into the the presence of the Lord and took the showbread and did what was unlawful in the days of Abiathar. Again, we could go there. But what is essential to answering these two questions this morning? The Sabbath was given as a gift to man, and it should not be twisted into a burden. And Jesus proclaims here that he is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord, he is the one who established the law. He is the one who judges the law. He is the one who maintains the law. He is the one who applies the law. He is the one who interprets the law. And now Jesus is saying, and in me, I am providing fulfillment of the law. When God gave the law, it was good and holy, and then man twisted it. See, later in Romans, we're reminded that the promises of God do not belong to the adherents of the law. This would make faith void and the promises null. Man cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and when one transgresses one part of the law, he's guilty of transgressing the entirety of the law. And so the fact is, we are unable to fulfill the law. And that is why we need Jesus as Lord. And that is why he came, to provide fulfillment of the law. He restores the law to its proper place as something that is good and nurtures and protects the people of God. And more than that, he fulfills the law, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Last scene this morning. Picking up in Mark 3. Verse 1, and in this final scene before we jump there, uh, it connects immediately with the last one. 
The situation is heightened here as Jesus now brings the conflict to the Pharisees' home field. This time, it's not going to be the Pharisees who initiate the conflict. It's going to be Jesus who initiates the conflict. The Pharisees begin by questioning in their hearts. They then go and question the disciples. They have the audacity to question Jesus. But now, Jesus is going to question them. Verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Here's the scene. Jesus is calling this man into the midst of them, is what it says in the Greek, that he calls him into the midst, like right in the middle, center of attention, all eyes on this man with a withered hand. The Pharisees are standing there watching, waiting to see whether Jesus is going to heal someone, actually heal someone on the Sabbath. He wouldn't dare. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill but they were silent. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus just gave them a layup. Did he not? Do you do good or bad on the Sabbath? Is it better to save or to kill? I mean, they should be responding like emphatically, Jesus, to save a life. Jesus, to do good. That's the right answer. We know this one and we can't wait to show you that we know this one. And yet they're silent. Their hearts had become so hard and their self-righteousness had desensitized them so severely to the purposes of God and to the suffering of man. Their pride had hardened their hearts into silence as to whether they should do good or save a life. Verse five, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. All at once, Jesus is filled with anger and grief. Once again, the Pharisees are shackled to their tradition and they have bypassed the heart of God's law. According to their tradition, it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. They would have reasoned in their hearts, Jesus, you have six other days when you can do things like this. This man had a withered hand for how long now? What's another 24 hours going to do, Jesus? Just wait. But Jesus chose this day and this place and this man at this time to declare something about himself. Jesus is declaring, I am the Savior. I am the Savior. How do we see that? Look at verse six. The Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The scene is dripping with irony. Jesus does good in loving this man and in healing him. The Pharisees do harm in clinging to their hypocritical traditions. More than that, Jesus saves a life. The Pharisees leave plotting to destroy a life. Rather than rejoicing in a display of the power of God and the restoration of health and life, 
They plot to destroy Jesus' life. And in Mark 3, 6, we have the trajectory set for the remainder of the gospel. The Pharisees went out, conspired with the Herodians, how that they might destroy him. In these five scenes, the conflict has been rising and it has its climax right here in verse 6 where Jesus is looking at the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees see who Jesus is declaring himself to be. And we learn that Jesus must be destroyed in order that I might live. Jesus is the Lord and he came, or Jesus is the savior and he came to provide life. We've been answering this morning two essential questions that all of us have to confront, all of us have to come into contact with and answer responsibly. Who is Jesus and why has he come? This morning, Jesus declares himself to be the forgiver of sins. Not just generally, but specifically, he came to provide forgiveness for my sins. We see Jesus as the physician who came to provide healing for those who are desperately sick. We see Jesus as the bridegroom who came to provide the only way for man to have relationship with God. We see Jesus as the Lord who provides fulfillment of the law, doing what we could not do. And we see him as the savior who came to provide life. In these five scenes, as Jesus is declaring, this is who I am and this is why, he can, why I've come. The Pharisees hear all of these answers, and how do they respond? By rejection and seeking to destroy him. They wanted to assimilate Jesus into their life and invite Jesus to be a part of what their life was already a part of, rather than surrendering. And this morning, as we see who the Lord declares himself to be, the same questions are put before us. And we too can choose to reject this forgiveness and freedom and fulfillment and salvation just as the Pharisees did. If so, you must recognize that you are not selecting a position of indifference. You are choosing to destroy Jesus. That is your only response when you reject this. That is your only disposition when you stare these two questions in the face and you hear the way that Jesus responds to them, if you reject them, you are planning to destroy him. The other response this morning is to embrace him. Embrace him as a sinner in need of forgiveness. Embrace him as one who is desperately ill beyond reparation and need him and call upon him as your healer, as your physician to cling to him alone as the only way for you to be reconciled and have right relationship with God. To rest in the fact that Jesus came and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, which we could not do. And to call upon him as one who needs a savior. Do you believe that your salvation is founded upon the foundation that Jesus had to be destroyed in order that you might live, in order that I might live. If yes, 
if you've embraced him as this forgiver of sins, as this physician, as the bridegroom, as the Lord and as Savior, then rejoice this morning in all that we have been given in Christ. The bottom of your notes, the question for each of us this morning, not just do I believe in Jesus, but do I believe in this Jesus? This Jesus who Mark has declared to us this morning, who Jesus has declared throughout these scenes. Father, this morning, we are blown away with all that we have been given in Christ. Father, we reminded over and over again of Jesus, all that you had to be, if you were any less than all that you were, then Father, we would be hopeless and helpless. But Jesus, because you are all of these things, we can rest in the fact that your grace is sufficient, that your life in the place of ours was enough. Jesus, this morning we look to you as a forgiver of my sins. This is the one who could heal me when I was desperately sick and without hope. I can rejoice in you being the bridegroom and that you alone usher us into the presence of the Father to celebrate that you have fulfilled the law as the Lord and to rest in knowing that you are our Savior. And you have given us life. Thank you for all that you've given us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.